knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. studying through the first main theme that Paul deals with here in the book of Romans, which is sin. And uh, this morning, we're going to finish this section on sin, and we're going to see a, a courtroom drama kind of unfold for us. There are three groups that are on trial, these three groups that represent all of humanity. These are the three groups that Paul has been addressing through this letter so far. We have the immoral heathen, we have the self-righteous moralist, and the religious Reliant. And each one of these groups have put in a plea of not guilty or not deserving of God's judgment. The first group is the immoral heathen, the one who lived their lives full of that depraved, sinful behavior. And they put in the plea of not deserving of God's judgment because they deny there is a God. They deny that truth that there is a judge, that they are sinners, and that they deserve the judgment that's coming to them. And so this is why when Paul addresses the immoral heathen, he reveals that they suppressed, they substituted, and they ignored these truths that there is a God and that they are sinners and that they deserve God's judgment. The second group is the self-righteous moralist, and they also put in a plea of not deserving of God's judgment, but they have a different reason than the immoral heathen. Their reason is because they don't understand the standard by which God judges. They think that their good works will outweigh their bad works, and that is the way in which God judges them, but they're wrong. And this is why Paul addresses the self-righteous moralist by revealing six principles of judgment that would help them see how God actually judges, not on the standard that they judge themselves, but on his standard, which is far more strict. The third group is the religious reliant, and they also have a plea of not deserving of God's judgment, and they also put this plea in there because they don't understand the standard by which God judges. They think their religious affiliation, they think their religious expression, you know, that these things are going to be the things that ultimately save them, not a relationship with Jesus. And this is why when Paul addresses this group, he also reveals six principles of judgment to help them understand that the standard by which they judge themselves is not the standard by which God will judge them, and therefore they are deserving of God's judgment. So in the first two chapters, Paul has basically shared his opening arguments in this trial against humanity. And, and here are the three groups that are you know on trial. And Paul has declared that each one is deserving of judgment. Now, the groups that would struggle the most with this, the group that would have the, the most argument to what Paul said, is the group we just looked at, the religious reliant, or more specifically, as we noted, Paul was focusing on religious Jews, those who were depending on the law and circumcision to save them. 
So as we look at the courtroom drama here at the beginning of chapter 3 and finish this section on sin, we're going to start with three arguments against deserving God's judgment. Three arguments that religious Jews would have posed and Paul, you know, places this uh, forth for them. Uh, and so, you know, if they want to rely upon circumcision to save them, if they were to rely upon the law to save them, Paul reveals something to us in chapter 2 that they have to keep it perfectly. But the problem is they can't keep the law perfectly, and so that's their problem. Now they're going to be judged before God. Now Paul has been a religious Jew himself before accepting Christ, and so he knows all the arguments against what he has proposed in chapter 2. And so he kind of starts chapter 3 posing the questions that he knows that these religious Jews would ask. That he knows that they would say, well, wait a second, Paul, if that's true what you're saying, then what about this? And, and what about this? And, and what about that? And so he's going to start this chapter dealing with these three arguments that the religious Jews would have in order to defend their plea that they're not deserving of judgment. But with each argument, he's going to show the fallacy within that thinking and the fact that they truly are deserving of judgment. And then in verse 9, Paul is going to share with us the charge against humanity. He's going to make it very clear. What is it that God is charging humanity with? And then in verses eight, uh, 10 through 18, Paul is going to share the indictment against humanity. An indictment is a formal written statement framed by a prosecuting authority charging a person for an offense. Paul is going to share with us 14 indictments against humanity. And he's going to share them from God's word. These are not things that Paul made up. These are things that God himself has shared through the Old Testament against humanity. And then in verses 19 through 20, Paul is going to finish this section with the verdict on this trial. Is mankind innocent or are we guilty? Do we deserve God's judgment or as so much of humanity wants to believe, are we not deserving of God's judgment? Judgment. That's how Paul is going to finish this section because he wants us to understand where we stand with God. If we have not chosen to accept Jesus Christ, all humanity is in one category and he wants all of them to understand where they stand in their relationship or lack thereof with God in the judgment that's going to come. So let's start with these three arguments that the religious Jews would pose trying to defend what Paul has just said in chapter 2 about the fact that the law can't save them, circumcision can't save them, unless they do the law perfectly. The first argument, verses 1 and 2, says this. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. As I've noted many times, the Jews definitely felt they had an advantage over the Gentiles. And their two main advantages that they felt they had was, well, God gave us the law, and we believe that saves us. And God gave us the the sign of circumcision, and we believe that saves us. And so they felt their main advantage was the law and circumcision that saved them, that made them right with God. Well, Paul has just built this argument, well, actually, the law doesn't save you. 
Circumcision doesn't save you unless you keep it perfectly, which you can't do. And so now they're kind of thinking, okay, wait a second. We've always felt that we have an advantage against Gentiles. And from what you're saying, Paul, it seems like you're declaring we don't have an advantage. That because you say the law doesn't save us and circumcision doesn't save us, the things that we held to as our advantage, you've kind of said, no, they're not really an advantage. And now we pose the question, okay, well, what advantage then if this is true, Paul, does the Jew have? What advantage does it have that we have circumcision in this covenant with God? I mean, do we have no advantage being God's chosen people? So that's the first argument that these religious Jews would throw out saying, Paul, you're seeming to say we have no advantage, and that goes completely against the way in which we think. Well, Paul's answer to this question is much in every way. You've missed my point. The Jews definitely have an advantage over the Gentiles. And Paul gives the main advantage that they were given. He says, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Now, that is not the only advantage that the Jews have. That's really their their most prominent advantage. In chapter 9, Paul's going to give us many more advantages that the Jews had over the Gentiles, like adoption, the glory of God, the covenants, the service towards God, the promises of God. He's going to share that there's a lot of advantages that God gave to the Jewish people But with this argument, he just focuses on what he feels to be the chief, the most important. And that's the fact that they were given the oracles of God, the the word of God. The Old Testament was given to the nation of Israel. God blessed them with the inspired record of his word, set forth the standard by which he desired them to live, the prophecies, the poetry that reveals God's heart for his people, the, the Old Testament that foreshadows and foretells of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. They were privileged to get to have God's word and be blessed with being guardians of this amazing treasure. But see, they misunderstood something. They figured because we have the law and because we have circumcision, those things save us and that's what gives us the advantage. Paul says, no, They don't give you an advantage because they save you. They give you an advantage because that you've been blessed with them and you have them and and you are a guardian of them. And ultimately, they can lead you to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But it doesn't save you unless you accept Christ. Just having it doesn't save you unless you come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so you think there's no advantage because it doesn't save you. No, it's a great advantage to have it. You've just taken it a step too far thinking that just having it is what saves you when it doesn't. You know, there's a great advantage today as we talked last week of the the religious reliant, those who rely on kind of that religious affiliation or outward expression to save them. You have many kids growing up in a religious home that's a Christian home, and it's a huge advantage that from infancy they start to hear the word of God taught, that their parents share with them the gospel, that they read to them scripture. That's a great advantage. But you know what? Growing up in a Christian home doesn't save you. You can't be saved based on your parents' faith in God. You have to choose it yourself. And so there's an advantage of having that upbringing, an advantage of hearing those truths. But until you personally make a decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are still not saved. So the advantage only is beneficial when you yourself come to that place. And Paul's helping these Jewish reliance to understand the same thing. Hey, you think just having the law is good enough? No, the law points you to your need for Jesus. And until you accept him, salvation will not be something that you 
have. And so Paul breaks down this argument. Hey, yes, you still have an advantage being a Jew. It's just not the kind of advantage that you thought it was. The second argument that the religious Jews would have posed is in verses 3 and 4. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. So here's kind of a follow-up question to the last question that Paul would give an answer to. If the Jews really do have an advantage, if there is an advantage of being God's chosen people and being given the law and being given circumcision, then they could say, okay, well, let's say that you're right, Paul. Let's say that some Jews don't believe in Jesus. And according to you, if they don't believe in Jesus, then they are going to receive God's judgment for their sins. If this is the case, Paul, will their unbelief, their, their lack of belief in Jesus Christ, make the faithfulness of God without effect? Will God's judgment on a Jew make the fact that he had a covenant with them the fact that he chose them, will it make him unfaithful to Jewish people? You see, once again, from the religious Jews' perspective, God wasn't going to judge them. Or if he did, it was going to be very different. That's why in the last chapter, Paul builds that case of God shows no partiality because the Jews thought, oh, yes, he will. We're going to be his favorites. He will judge us by a different standard than he judges the rest of the world. And so they, they don't really get this. Well, wait a second, Paul. So are you claiming then that God's not going to be faithful to us as Jews in the sense of he's not going to show us some kind of advantage, some kind of favoritism in his judgment to us? Is God unfaithful to us if he judges us for our sin? Paul's answer to them is certainly not. God's not unfaithful. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Paul wants these religious Jews to see that they don't understand the standard by which God judges. This has been a huge issue with these two groups, the moralists and the religious. Both of them have their own standard by which they feel they should be judged, which is not the standard by which God actually judges. And here is another problem here that these religious Jews have. Claiming that God would be unfaithful if he judged a Jew for their sin shows they don't understand the standard by which God judges them. And so Paul says, let God be true and every man a liar. Let God be true. Let the standard that he has established for judgment be true. And every man who would claim God is unfaithful for judging that way be a liar. Just because the religious Jews didn't believe in the truth of how God was going to judge them does not change the truth of how God was going to judge them. You know, something important for us to understand is truth doesn't depend on us believing it to be true. And in our culture today, that they're trying to twist that. Well, unless you believe it's true, it's not true. you got to believe it to be true to make it true. You know, if you were standing in a, a math class and the teacher said, 2 plus 2 equals 4, and you shout out, no, I don't believe it, that's not true. That doesn't change the truth that 2 plus 2 equals 4, it just makes you wrong. But we think, oh, if I say it's not true, then it must not be true. No, you're just now wrong in declaring something that's not true, but 2 plus 2 still truly is 4. The truth that we are deserving of God's judgment, 
The truth that Jesus Christ died on a cross for our sins so that we could have a relationship with Him. The truth that you and I must accept who Jesus is in order for us to be forgiven. These truths are real whether or not I believe them. But here's the key. My belief in them affects how these truths affect me. If I choose not to believe them, then they do not have the benefit of saving me. If I choose to believe them, then they do have the benefit of saving me. But my lack of belief, my saying, hey, that's not true, it doesn't change that it's true. It just makes me ignorant of what the truth is. It just makes me wrong, but the truth stays the same. And so that's basically what Paul is telling these Jews. You can deny how God's going to judge you. You can claim that he would be unfaithful to do so, but the reality is, let God be true. And what he has as a standard be true, and you be a liar for claiming that God would be unrighteous or unfaithful to judge you for your sin. Charles Spurgeon said this, If God says one thing and every man in the world says another, God is true and all men are false. God speaks the truth and cannot lie. God cannot change. His word like himself is immutable. We are to believe God's truth if nobody else believes it. The general consensus of opinion is nothing to a Christian. He believes God's word and he thinks more of that than the universal opinion of men. God's judgment on Jews who don't believe in Jesus does not show that God is unfaithful to Jews. It shows that there is no favoritism with God and that he punishes sin wherever he sees it. The very fact that he condemns an unfaithful Jew is the best possible proof that God is just in his judgment, that he judges everyone the same. All sinners will be equally condemned. The third argument that the religious Jews would have posed is in verses 5 through 8. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? If the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we were slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. Now this argument being thrown out here could actually be thrown out by any of these three groups. The the religious Jew could say this, the self-righteous moralist could try to use this argument, and the immoral heathen could also try to use this argument. The argument is this, if my unrighteousness will demonstrate God's righteousness, if my lies increase the truth of God, how can God judge me? How can he pour his wrath upon me. My sin ultimately serves to bring God more glory. And if that's the case, why don't I just do more evil that God's glory will be grown, that good may come? The question is basically asking, is it fair for God to pour his wrath upon me and judge me if my unrighteousness demonstrates God's righteousness? If my sin increases God's glory, Shouldn't I just sin the more that God's glory be demonstrated all the more? Paul's answer to this question is certainly not. And then he poses a very logical question, especially for the moralist and the religious Jew who both believe in God's judgment. He says this, for then how will God judge the world? 
If God didn't have a right to judge us because our sin merely reveals the righteousness of God, then God would have no right to judge anyone because everybody's sin can ultimately do that. And so anyone could use this argument. And so Paul's saying, if that's really the argument you want to use, then you now believe that God has no right to judge anyone, which both the religious person and the moralist would not want to hold to because they believe that the immoral heathen deserves God's judgment, you know, desperately. So Paul's saying, now you're making a claim that would say God cannot judge anyone. Now, the most drastic example of someone who might really pose this question would be Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. He might say something, Lord, I know I betrayed your son, but you used it for good. In fact, if I hadn't done what I did, Jesus wouldn't have been arrested and gone to the cross. And even so, it was prophesied in the Old Testament, so I just fulfilled Scripture. I mean, surely you can't hold this against me. I mean, what I did, my unrighteousness has demonstrated your righteousness. My my sin has, has shown great glory to you. How can you judge me for that? The reality is, Judas is judged because he sinned. His sin and the fact that God is able to bring good from it does not now make him innocent. And this is the fallacy of the argument, thinking, well, if God can do something good with my sin, then I don't deserve to be punished. No, you still deserve because you're still guilty. Just because God's able to take what you've done and bring glory to himself because he's so amazing and is able to do that doesn't change the fact that you're a sinner. It doesn't change the fact that you're still guilty. It just reveals how amazing God is. But it doesn't do anything for you. And so this is a a fallacy to think that now I don't deserve God's judgment because of that reality. Dr. Lewis Johnson said this, It is true that human sin does provide God the opportunity to show the truth about his character, specifically his great mercy and loving kindness. Indeed, in response to man's sin, God does not obliterate mankind, but provides the way of salvation and reveals more about his own righteousness. Sinners argue, therefore, that mankind's sin serves a good purpose. Ridiculous. Such fallacious reasoning says we should go on sinning so God can go on proving how true and faithful he is. Sin is evil and is never justified. And those who think this receive just condemnation. Sin is against God, not for him. God does good because of who he is, not because of our evil. So once again, this argument reveals that the group doesn't understand the standard by which God judges. That, that's where they're missing this whole time. They're trying to escape and say, well, well, surely the standard should be this. You know, if God gets glory through my sin, then he shouldn't, you know, judge me. No, the standard is you don't fulfill God's standard perfectly. God will judge you. That's what his word teaches us. That's what he reveals to us. And so now Paul has shared these arguments that, you know, These people who have made the case of we're not deserving of God's judgment in their plea would maybe throw out. He's dismantled those. And now he's going to come to the charge. The charge against all of humanity here in verse 9 says this. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. When Paul asks this question, are we better than they, the we is Jews, because Paul is a Jew himself. He's including himself in this. Are we, Jews, better than they, Gentiles? 
The answer is, not at all. The religious Jew is not more right with God than the moral Gentile or the immoral heathen. And the reason is because the charge against all of humanity. Paul says, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Everybody, the religious Jew, the self-righteous moralist, the immoral heathen, everybody is under the same category. We are all under sin. That is the charge against humanity who's on trial before God. Now, this word under sin speaks of our slavery to sin. It's literally translated sold under sin. Stuart Briscoe shares some great insights about what it means to be under sin. There's a major difference between sin and sins. So we must be careful not to confuse doing things that are not right with the fact that we are dominated by a fundamentally evil dynamic. The difference is not unlike that which exists between the symptoms of a disease and the disease itself. When this is understood, it becomes obvious that the human predicament is not so much that we have done things wrongly, but that we are in the Christless state under the command, under the authority, under control of sin, and helpless to escape from it. Accordingly, any solution to the human problem that fails to deal with the root cause of sin is no more a solution than a cold compress on a fevered brow or a cure for the infection causing the fever. Something we need to understand is not that we just do sin, but that we actually have a sinful nature that we are born with, that's within us. And so, you know, we aren't sinners because we sin. We're sinners ultimately because we're born that way. And as a byproduct of that, we sin. So the charge against all humanity is we are all under sin. We are born with this sin nature. And now in verses 10 through 18, Paul is going to give us the indictment against humanity. And this is an indictment not that Paul has come up with. This is an indictment that God has given through the Old Testament. And this would be very important for the religious Jew who holds to the Old Testament to realize God has already declared this in his word. And Paul is just quoting Old Testament scriptures to reveal the indictment against humanity. Let's see what he says in verses 10 through 18. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb, and their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In these verses, Paul quotes six different Old Testament passages, and within that, he shares 14 specific indictments against all of humanity, which you can see here on this list. And next to each indictment, I have put the Old Testament passage from where this indictment comes from. And so Paul, when he says, as it is written, he's referring to the Old Testament has declared these 14 indictments against all of humanity. Now, these are, are very damning indictments against humanity. And these 14 indictments really kind of fit into three main 
categories. The first six indictments deal with the character of humanity. The next four indictments deal with the communication of humanity. And the final four indictments focus on the conduct of humanity. And so with this indictment against humanity, Paul is going to show that God has revealed what humanity's character, communication, and conduct is like. So let's start by looking at the first six indictments focusing on the character of humanity. The very first one, Paul says, there is none righteous, no, not one. The word righteous speaks of being right with God because someone has perfectly kept God's righteous standard. None of us can do it. None of us can be right with God because we have kept God's righteous standard. This is why we so desperately need Jesus who did it on our behalf. But in and of ourselves, without Jesus Christ, nobody is righteous. Nobody has kept God's perfect standard the way that we should. Now, for those who might think that they are the exception to this rule, Paul adds some clarity. No, not one. There is none that are righteous. And for those of you who think you're not part of this, no, not one. Not you, not you, not you. Nobody meets God's perfect standard except God's Son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life. Now, this is really the only indictment that humanity needs in order to be found guilty before God. We haven't met the standard. We haven't lived up to what God has declared that we should. So really, this is the only indictment that we need for God to say, guilty is charged. But Paul's going to throw 13 more in there just so that we can understand how depraved we really are. The second indictment is, there is none who understands. Stuart Briscoe shares some great insights about what this means. Without exception, the thought process of men and women are so affected by sin that there will always be some degree of deficiency in their grasp of the truth as it is to be found only in the knowledge of God. This naturally leads to confusion in everything else because all things have their meaning in him. The politician who's confused about God will be confused about God's world, which leads inevitably to a confused worldview and inadequate political solutions. The sociologist who does not understand adequately God cannot thoroughly understand God's masterpiece, man. So he will be in error at some point in his sociology. The same kind of thing must be said about all areas of human endeavor which are based on a warped and withered understanding of God. Apart from Christ, no one truly understands God. And that's why in our culture today, we have so many messed up and twisted thoughts and ideas and directions that we go because people don't understand God. The third indictment is there is none who seeks after God. Jesus said something concerning this in John 6, 44. No, man, no one comes to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Jesus shares a very important truth with us about the reason people come to God. There's only one reason that people can come to God. It's because God first draws them. God is the one who has to initiate the process. Why? Because there are none who seek after God. That's the state that we are in in our sinful, depraved nature. We don't actually seek after God unless God first seeks to us and draws us to himself. 
For those of us who have accepted Christ, it's only because God reached out to you first. If you think, well, I'm so great and I'm so wonderful. I, I sought God and I found him and, you know, this is great. No, the only reason that you ever sought the Lord was because he first sought you. Was He, he first drew you to himself. The fourth indictment is that they have all turned aside. Turned aside means to deviate or turn from the right way or course. Everyone is guilty of turning from God's right path to their own perceived right way. We're all guilty of that. We've left what God's path is, his standard of right and wrong, and we've gone on our own and tried to determine our own right and wrong and our own path for ourselves. Isaiah 53, 6 reveals this clearly to us. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. This is one of the reasons Isaiah said that the Messiah would have to come and die on the cross for our sin because every one of us has gone astray, has gone after his own way, has abandoned the truth and the right path that God has established. We are all guilty of that. And because we're guilty of leaving God's path, we deserve his judgment. The fifth indictment is that they have all, they have together become unprofitable. Unprofitable means of no profit or use to be of no benefit. This word was often used to describe rotten fruits or sour milk. Fruits and milk are meant to be sweet and meant to be consumed and enjoyed, but if they're rotten and if they're sour, then you don't want to put them in your mouth because now their purpose is gone. The sweetness is gone. The purpose that they have is gone. And so now they are unprofitable. They used to be profitable before they became, you know, uh, destroyed in the fact that they were rotten and sour. In the same way, because of our sin and the fact that we have turned from God's path, we have now become unprofitable. The purpose that God has designed us for, we now no longer do. And this is the issue that we have. We are like that rotten fruit and that sour milk. Our purpose has been ruined because of our sin. The sixth indictment is there is none who does good. No, not one. Oh, wait a second, Paul. I mean, there's a lot of people who do good. Now, here's something that we need to understand with what the word of God is speaking of here. Who determines whether we do something good or not? See, in our culture, we want to determine that. Oh, yeah, that was really good. Hey, and you did really good as well. You know, we want to determine what is good in the sight of men. What Paul is saying is there is no one who does good in the eyes of God. That's the one who matters because guess who's judging us? We're not judging each other. We're not going to stand before each other when we die. We're going to stand before the righteous judge, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. That's the one who's going to judge us. And so we want to know whether he determines if we have done something good or not. Well, the book of Isaiah, chapter 64, it reveals to us what God's perspective is of man apart from Jesus Christ trying to do good works. Verse 6 says this, But we all like an unclean thing in all our righteousness, those works that we try to do to be right before God, are like filthy rags. Literally, this is speaking of rags that women on their period would use. It's a thing that he's saying, that's how God sees it. 
that it's just filthy rags. All these efforts that we try to be good in ourselves and our own works, God sees it as filthiness. And we think, man, look at all these people doing good stuff. Well, we might think in our eyes they're good, but that's not what God sees. And so we're being told here, no one does good in the eyes of God. No, not one. Paul emphasizes that again for that person who thinks, well, well, not me. You're not talking about me, Paul. I do good. No, no, not one. You're included as well. Charles Spurgeon said this about the fact that there are none who does good. The fallen human race of man left to its own energy has not produced a single lover of God or doer of holiness, nor will it ever do so. Grace must interpose or not one specimen of humanity will be found to follow after the good and true. This is God's verdict after looking down upon the human race. You know, if you talk to someone and you ask them the question, if you were to die tonight and you were to face God, why should he let you into heaven? The most common answer that we have in our culture is because I'm a good person. Not according to the Bible, you're not. People think I'm good. And ultimately what they mean by that is my good has outweighed my bad, as we talked about the moralist. But they actually believe I'm a good person. And our culture teaches you're born good and that you just become bad. The Bible teaches actually you're born sinful and you stay that way unless Christ redeems you. I mean, all you got to do is watch a little baby, you know, take something from them that they are having fun playing with, and you're going to see the sinful nature come out right away. You don't have to teach them to scream and, and throw tantrums. That's something that's just in them because they're born sinful. There's none who does good. No, not one. What these first six indictments reveal is that humanity's character is completely depraved and sinful. And because of that, we deserve the judgment of God. The next four indictments that Paul shares focuses on the communication of humanity. Paul's going to give an indictment against how those who do not know Jesus Christ speak. The seventh indictment is their throat is an open tomb. Tombs in that day were sealed just like they are in our day for several reasons. One, to show respect for the dead body in there, but also to hide the sight and the stench of the decaying corpse that is there. So an open tomb, it would reveal that decay. It would reveal that stench from the dead inside. Paul uses this picture to describe the throat of humanity apart from the changing work of Jesus Christ. Our words come from this place of death and decay. Ray Pritchard says this about humanity's throat as an open tomb. Our speech has the smell of death about it because there is nothing but death inside us. Is this why we talk about dirty jokes and gutter language? And is it a coincidence that so many of our dirty words have to do with human excrement and perverted sex? Is this not a reflection of the decay inside the human heart? Why do we love dirty talk? Why do children love trash talk? Because inside your heart is a rotting corpse and the stench of it comes out of your mouth. Humanity's throat is an open tomb. The eighth indictment is with their tongues they have practiced deceit. 
Once again, deceit, like all these other things, are just within our sinful nature. You don't have to teach children to try to deceive you. They just do it. I don't know any parents who are trying to teach their kids, all right, now this is how you deceive people and you go and do it like this. Okay, good. Now try deceiving mom and dad. You don't have to try to do that. They're born with that. I remember when Scarlett was about three years old, she was making cupcakes with Jenny and, you know, we told her, hey, you can't eat these until after dinner, which, you know, for a three-year-old, that was difficult. I made this and I want this sugar. No, you're not going to get it. I come into the kitchen a little while longer after that and we see some cupcakes missing. I go into the bedroom and all over her face and hands are icing, crumbs all over her bed and her clothes. And I say, Scarlett, did you eat the cupcakes we told you not to? No. What is the icing then that's on your face and hands and the crumbs and everywhere? I don't know how they got here. We didn't teach her. Now lie to mom and dad when you're about to get in trouble. This is something that's in her sinful nature to try to deceive and to try to lie to get out of trouble. It's something that's in each one of us. William Newell shares some great insights about the next thing that we're going to look at. The ninth Indictment is the poison of asps is under their lips. This is speaking of a a poisonous snake. Look what William Newell shares about this. The fangs of a deadly serpent lie ordinarily folded back in the upper jaw, but when it throws up its head to strike, those hollow fangs drop down, and when the serpent bites, the fangs press a sack of deadly poison hidden under its lips at the root, thus injecting the venom into the wound. You and I were born with a moral poison sack like this. And how people do claim the right to strike others with their venom words. You know, even people that we would expect to control the way in which they speak, to control the words that come out of their mouth, because the positions that they hold, you would expect them to show a little more uh, self-control. You know, Jenny and I lived in, you know, Scotland. We were part of Great Britain and especially the English. They pride themselves greatly in being proper. And I found interesting uh, something that I read about Winston Churchill, who was the prime minister of this proper place. And you would think if anyone's going to show proper speech and control his tongue, it should be the prime minister of Great Britain. But while he was prime minister... There was a wealthy woman, which is interesting as well, because if you've seen Downton Abbey, you know that they treat the wealthy in a much more proper way. And so this woman named Lady Astor, she didn't like Winston Churchill. He didn't like her, and they kind of had this banter going back. And one evening, Lady Astor saw Winston Churchill drunk in a hotel, and with disgust, she said, Sir Winston, you are drunk, and you should be ashamed of yourself. To which he replied, My lady, you are ugly. Tomorrow I will be sober, but you still will be ugly. (laughs) On another occasion, Lady Astor said, If I were your wife, I'd put arsenic in your tea. To which he responded, If I were your husband, I'd drink it. (laughs) Each one of us have poisonous words ready to come out, even the proper prime ministers of Great Britain. The tenth indictment is their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. The words full of speak of a cup that's filled to the brim, that ready at any moment to spill over what's in it. Full of cursing, full of bitterness, saying that we're full, ready 
Any moment I'm ready to curse, any moment I'm ready to spew this bitterness out, it's just within me ready to pour out. You know, Jesus shares something very important to us about our words and what they reveal about ourselves. Matthew 12, verses 34 through 36, Jesus says this, Brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. Notice what Jesus reveals here. He says, you know what? Your words reveal your heart. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So whatever is in your heart, it's going to come out in your words. You're going to be able to see as you listen to someone speak where their heart is. So when evil and sinful things come out of your mouth, it reveals the evil, sinful heart that you have. And notice what Jesus says. For every idle word men speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. With these four indictments against communication, it reveals once again the depravity of sinful man and the way in which they speak, and they deserve God's judgment because of it. The final four indictments that Paul shares focuses on the conduct of humanity. The 11th, 12th, and 13th indictment are very similar, and it paints a very sad picture of the conduct of humanity. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. You know, these three indictments are really just a condensed history of humanity. You look at the history of mankind, and what a description this is. It fits perfectly what we see in our culture. They're, they're Feet are swift to shed blood where we're quick to go to war and kill and bring destruction and misery and, and the way of peace we haven't known. The Society of International Law at London once gave statistics declaring that for the last 4,000 years of human history, there have been 286 years of peace despite more than 8,000 peace treaties. Humanity's history has been one of war has been one of being swift to shed blood, to bring destruction, to bring misery, to not know peace. And humanity isn't getting any better. When you look at our world today, this is one of the most bloody and violent centuries of all human history. It clearly reveals how deserving we are of God's judgment. The final indictment that Paul brings against humanity reveals why so many are willing to engage in such horrible, depraved conduct. Paul tells us there is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, every sin and rebellion against God ultimately happens because we don't have a proper fear, a proper respect for him. Because if you did, and you knew what he was, and you knew the judgment he would bring, you would think twice about going against him. You would think twice about doing things that he says not to do. But we don't have a fear of God. And this is the real problem that we started with, with the immoral heathen who suppress the truth, who deny the truth, who ignore the truth. Why? Because if they don't believe there's a God, if they don't believe there's a judge, 
they can live however they want because they're not going to be accountable to anyone. There's no one that's going to judge them for their sin. That's what our world is teaching people. There's no one there. There's no God. You're not accountable to anyone. Live how you want. There's no fear of God. And when there's no fear of God, huge sinful problems are the result. What these four indictments reveal is that humanity's conduct is completely depraved and sinful. And based on that conduct, once again, we deserve God's judgment. Well, now that Paul has laid out this 14-count indictment against all of humanity, he's going to finish this section on sin with the final verdict. The trial is now coming to an end. God is the judge. What verdict is he going to give upon all of humanity? Verses 19 and 20 says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law it's a knowledge of sin. The verdict that God gives to all humanity is guilty. We are guilty of sin, and we are deserving of God's judgment. Now, Paul says something very important here right before he says that they're guilty. He says that every mouth may be stopped. And what Paul is doing is he's painting a picture of the guilt of mankind. And think about this, because we looked at two weeks ago, you know, we are going to stand before the righteous judge, Jesus Christ, and there are books written of every single thing that we have ever done wrong. And for those who have not accepted Christ, those books will be open, and every sin that they have committed will be read. And what Paul is saying here is when these people stand before the righteous judge and he reads what they have done and their sins are out there, their mouth is going to be stopped. They aren't going to have a rebuttal. They aren't going to have a reply. They aren't going to be able to say, I'm innocent. I don't deserve this. They're going to recognize and be quiet and realize I am guilty. More guilty than I ever even knew. I don't even remember that one. That was a thought. God has this huge list and it's going to be overwhelming. And Paul's going to say their mouths are stopped because everyone is going to realize the reality of the truth of what God has declared all humanity is, which is guilty of sin and deserving of God's judgment. Charles Spurgeon says this, That is the true condition of the whole world, guilty before God. This is the right attitude for the whole human race to stand with its finger on its lips, having nothing to say as to why it should not be condemned. The immoral heathen, the self-righteous moralist, the religious reliant, they all put in a plea, not guilty, not deserving of God's judgment. That's what we think based on our denial of God or based on our own understanding of how God judges God says, you're all wrong. I declare every one of you guilty as charged, and you will be judged because of it. Paul started Romans with this section on sin to reveal to us the bad news that we are sinners who deserve God's judgment. And the main purpose of starting with this and revealing this and going into great detail about this is to prepare us for the good news. 
to prepare us for the next section that he is going to reveal to us, which is the section on salvation. How is it that you and I become saved? How is it that this person who is sinful and depraved and deserving of God's judgment, how do we receive salvation? But here's the issue that we have. If we don't start with the bad news, if we don't deal with the immoral heathen, the moralist, the religious, in the proper way, if we don't help them understand the standard by which they think they're going to be judged isn't the right standard, isn't God's standard, and the one that they are denying actually exists, and the sin that they say isn't sin actually is, if we don't start with the bad news that you truly are a sinner, deserving of God's judgment, then there's no need for a Savior. They don't even want to go to the good news. Well, why do I need a Savior? Why do I need what Jesus did? I'm fine. My good outweighs my bad. My religious affiliation and expression will save me. You know, they're, they're holding on to a lie, and therefore it keeps them from the truth. And so we have to start with the bad news of what is true and where they actually stand before God, guilty as charged, so they recognize, I need Jesus. I need what he's done. I need the Savior. And that's why Paul has gone into detail in these first three chapters to build the foundation of sin, the bad news, so that the next three chapters, he can build the wonderful, great news of what Jesus has done to save us from our sins. But you know what? I hope that this section has revealed to us every single person. There is none good. No, not one. There is none righteous. No, not one. Everybody is guilty. And apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, will be judged. And I really hope that that sinks into our minds and our hearts because I guarantee we have people in our life that are in the category of one of the three things we've been looking at. They could be the immoral heathen denying God, living the life that they want to live. They could think they're moral, but they're really not. They could be holding on to some religious thing, but not Jesus. And we need to be those because we've been called to go into all the world and preach the gospel, which includes the bad news and the good news of what Jesus has done. We have those people in our life and we need to recognize they are going to be judged unless they accept what Jesus has done for them. There's no getting away from it. There's no escape from it. If in this life they do not make a choice for Jesus Christ, when they face him after they die, they will be judged for all eternity and sent to hell. And I hope that sobers us to get out and say, I want to reach my neighbor. I want to reach my coworker. I want to reach my family. I want to reach those people who don't know the truth. And I've been given the wonderful news to declare to them how they can be set free from their sin. We have that calling as believers in Christ, and I encourage you to take that up and to do that.